When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash one four. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the executive director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or uh, know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. When I had the opportunity to serve as a bishop, I remember several instances where an individual came into my office and was really struggling with a doubt, whether it's related to the history of the church, a doctrine, a policy, and was in a place of belief that they were not familiar with. You know, they had led a life of of certainty many times where they could feel and where they had the ability to really stand and, and testify of the tenets of this gospel. And now that had shifted, that had changed. And as the leader, you know, I, I wanted to be the leader that had all the answers. I wanted to have the perfect scripture reference. I wanted to say the right things, but many times I didn't, and I learned from it. And so when I had the opportunity to reach out to Terrell Givens, who is a, a well-known author, the author of books like uh, The Christ Who Heals, The God Who Weeps, The Crucible of Doubt, you'll find these on the, the bookshelves of Deseret Book. But when I had the opportunity to sit down with Terrell Givens and ask him some questions, I really wanted to gain his perspective on, as a leader, how can I help the doubter? How can I help the individual that's sincerely asking questions that maybe I have an answer to, but they don't? And what led was a fantastic interview. And, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with Terrell Givens. And this interview, I think you'll find is different than any other interview he's ever done. And I, and I hope you appreciate it. And you'll definitely want to, uh, to hit the rewind button from time to time or, or take notes and, and a variety of quotes that really will really impact you and, and touch your heart as they did mine. But uh, I think you'll you'll enjoy it. 
Today, I am in Orem, Utah, sitting down with Terrell Givens. How are you, Terrell? Pretty good. Happy to be here. Nice. Now, many people are familiar with you. They've maybe seen your name on various books and in desert books and other locations. But uh, for maybe those that uh, don't recognize your voice, uh, what would you? What, what background do we need to know on you? Well, I'm a professor of religion and literature at the University of Richmond. My main interest academically is the intersection of literature and religious sentiment or religious expression. But many years ago, I got sidetracked uh, more specifically into the area of Mormon studies, Mormon theology, Mormon culture and history. And so that's where I've done most of my publishing and speaking. Nice. And did you always want to uh, be a professor? Uh, pretty much. I, 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 uh, I, I always wanted to live the life of the mind, I guess. Oh, yeah. Put it in fairly uh, <laughs> pretentious language, maybe. I, uh, why go to a nine to five job and do something, uh, I don't know, business oriented when you could spend your life exploring books, literature, and great ideas. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've been successful at uh, creating that life. I have. I've been extraordinarily fortunate yeah. in, uh, in finding a place in that world. And uh, at University of Richmond, is that a place you, I mean, it's been a, how, how long have you been there and is it a place you'll probably well, end you, your career? You, uh, you know, it's hard to get a good job in the humanities these days and it was back in the eighties. Uh, so usually you have to take what you can get crumbs that fall from the table. But I was fortunate that the very first job I got out of graduate school was University of Richmond. It's a really fine, small, private liberal arts college with an emphasis on teaching and they allow me and always have a great deal of freedom to pursue my academic interest wherever they take me. So I've been very happy to, to be there ever since my uh, my graduate school days. Yeah. And how would you describe early on in your life just the development of your of your faith? Pretty traditional LDS experience? Uh, not really. I was born and raised initially in the Presbyterian faith. My grandfather baptized me. He was a minister. Hmm. My family soon felt into, uh, I guess, a kind of agnosticism, my parents, and discovered the Latter-day Saint faith when I was about eight or nine years old. So I was baptized at that time, but they soon lapsed into inactivity. And uh, we moved to central Virginia when I was in my teen years. And it was a, a, a Lehigh in the wilderness kind of experience. My father just felt moved upon or the desire to uproot himself from the Southwest and relocate to a place where we had neither friends nor relatives nor employment. <laughs> and uh, so I can truly say, as Nephi did, I lived in a tent. <laughs> we camped <laughs> wow. out when I was 16 years old. That was my home. We set up stakes in a campground, lived in a tent with six brothers and sisters while my father looked for work and uh, thought it would be a good idea to look up the local Latter-day Saint church. So we did. So this is during the time of that inactivity. That's right. That's right. And so that was how and where we rediscovered the church, so to speak. And I just had a kind of spiritual awakening of my own at that time. I was 16 years old and began to pursue quite enthusiastically and energetically a, a better understanding of Latter-day Saint mm -hmm. faith and doctrine. And uh, that changed the course of my life. Nice. And so even during those teen years, would you consider yourself more of an intellectual than your peers? Yeah, I think so. I was kind of bookish, but no, I, I think I was, I was kind of well-rounded. I mean, I was on a wrestling team and involved in, you know, the life of the school and friendships, but, but yeah, I knew that I wanted to do something probably that was going to be more yeah. academically oriented. Yeah. And then came time for you to serve a mission. Was that a, an easy decision for you? Yeah, that was an easy decision. Yeah. yeah. There was no, no uncertainty whatsoever in my mind. In fact, 
I had, you know, my, my plans had been going into Virginia that I was, I was, I wanted to go to Yale, wanted to go on a wrestling scholarship. And, uh, it was that experience of suddenly finding myself immersed in the world of the spirit and the Mormon faith that suddenly, uh, all of my plans centered on, you know, BYU, where else would you go to get <laughs> right. ready for a mission? <laughs> so I didn't even apply anywhere else. You know, I, I've second guessed that decision many times, wondering if I, I should have explored more uh, other kinds of opportunities. Yeah. But anyhow, I went to BYU, had a good experience, went to Brazil on a mission and had a wonderful two-year mission. And when you got that call to Brazil, was, uh, you know, being the, with the intellectual mind you had, was, was there a certain location you were hoping to go? Or yeah, was... yeah. I was a little disappointed. I had, you? you know, I thought Europe would be a more interesting uh -huh. and culturally rich experience, uh -huh. but I, I wouldn't trade the, sure. the Latin American venture for anything. Nice. And then, so you come back from mission, finish your undergrad at BYU? Finished at BYU and had a number of false stops and starts. My father, by this point, had a, set himself up as a, as a book dealer. And being bookish, loving literature, I was really drawn to that life. And he offered me time and again a partnership in the book business. So I started graduate school at BYU, but then dropped out to run the bookstore with my father. That got frustrating and boring. So I went to Cornell, started a program there in intellectual history, grew fairly disillusioned with the intellectual climate, especially in the Ivy League in the 1980s. So dropped out of school again, went back to the book business. And then a third time, with, largely with my wife's urging, decided, no, I really need that academic life. And so went in this time to Chapel Hill and finished my graduate work there in comparative literature. Nice. So I know sometimes you're known as Terrell Givens and other times you're known as the husband of Fiona Givens, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> happy, happy to be known that way as well. And she's a, such a dynamic uh, speaker and, and uh, author herself. And uh, how, did, how did these two minds come together? Yeah, I, yeah I, I sometimes refer to myself in introductions as Mr. Thatcher uh, or, <laughs> That's her main or Prince name. Philip. No, no, oh. Margaret Thatcher. Oh, Mar you're you're I dating you. yourself. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was very young in the 80s. I mean, just the, the <laughs> husband of the, of the preeminent woman. We met the very first day of class in 1979 in the fall semester in a comparative literature uh, introduction and uh, began dating immediately. And we're engaged within weeks. <laughs> well, typical BYU story. Yeah, typical BYU <laughs> pattern there. And then I left for a study abroad in Vienna for six months and returned and married her shortly thereafter. I, I'm sure in those, uh, some of those first few dates, you realized it was a, she had a special mind. A special well, that, 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 that was it. That was what really attracted, I think, us to each other was uh, our first dates were really, in fact, virtually all of our courtship were just long walks along rivers and in the woods and mountains talking about literature yeah. and music and art and shared shared love that's great so she encouraged you to continue with your with your studies she and, did she and, she always knew that nothing less than an academic life was going to satisfy me and uh, pushed you towards that phd she did yeah nice. yeah she was she was my first and final reader of all my work and in my dissertation and nice. related then you start your uh, professional career in teaching at uh, the University of Richmond. Started that at Richmond while we continued to grow our family. We actually were expecting our fifth child before we, I even landed that first job. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a tough, it was a tough life. I don't see many young people doing it that way yeah. anymore. But back then, you know, the counsel from Elders McConkie and President Kimball was you, you get married, you have your children, and you fit your education and career in somehow. Yeah. 
And so we did. It was, a, it was an arduous, taxing, and sometimes really traumatizing few years uh, growing up in really impoverished and, and uh, challenging circumstances. And Fiona was determined that she wanted to have a family and, and raise that family from the very beginning. And so she did. And she did a magnificent job as a mother, raiser of our children. And then she returned to school herself and finished her undergraduate work, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and went on and got a graduate degree in, in history and has been pursuing her own intellectual aspirations ever since. That's great. Fantastic. And obviously, you're known for various books, projects, uh, organizations, uh, but when it seems like most professors, they kind of have the the author bug in them. Was that, is that the case or... For you, did you think you would you'd be the author of several books? No, I never did. In fact, um, you know, you you go through these angst-ridden months as you're nearing PhD completion. Wonder what am I going to do if I don't get a job? Fifty percent of people didn't at that time, and uh, then you land the job and you you lay awake at night, lie awake at night, rather wondering, okay, now what am I going to write about in order to get tenure? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I always felt that I loved literature, but I really didn't want to spend my life writing academic journal articles on 15th century pastoral poetry. I, you know, I, I was searching for some way to employ my training and abilities in a meaningful, in a meaningful direction. And it came upon me entirely by accident and unforeseen. My father collected anti-Mormon literature he was himself a committed, devout Mormon, but he thought it was an interesting yeah. kind of genre. Yeah. You know, Zane Gray anti-Mormon novels and and Harper's Magazine articles from the 1860s and 70s caricaturing Mormonism. And he kept handing those to me and saying, hey, you're in literature, write something about this stuff. Huh. And I finally had collected enough from him that I detected really intriguing patterns in the representation of Mormons in the 19th century and realized that virtually nobody had really explored Mormonism from that through that lens. There'd been a lot of really good history, historical work done, but nothing that looked at Mormonism through the lens of literature. And so my first book that resulted from that was uh, Viper on the Hearth, and that was a study of what can we learn about what made Americans anxious about Mormons in the 19th century, and that's, I think, best revealed through the way they depicted Mormons in fiction. And I thought maybe that was a one-time foray into Mormonism because I was supposed to be teaching Romanticism and British literature. But I opened one day a few years thereafter a, a church news, and the article that caught my attention was LDS Church publishes the 100 millionth copy of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and that caught my attention, and I wondered, uh, how does that compare to other bestsellers in American history? So there wasn't an internet at that point, so I had to do some real, <laughs> real footwork to tracked down American, the history of American bestsellers. And I very soon discovered that was it. That was the best-selling, most widely distributed book in American history after wow. the Bible, but the most widely distributed book ever produced by a Mormon, by an American. Yeah. And so that very day I fired off an email to my editor at Oxford, who had done my first book, made known to her that fact, and then said, my research suggests that there has never been an academic study of the Book of Mormon. And uh, she wrote back that very same day and said, you write it, we'll publish it. And so I think it was at that point with the second book that I really knew that Mormon studies was going to be my future. Hmm. And uh, that's branched off to several several works, right? Yeah, yeah. I've done I nice. don't know, a dozen or so books since then on Mormonism. Nice. 
Well, there are several interviews with you, you know, talking about your various books, which we'll get into a little bit, but I want to make sure we, uh, before we go any further, talk about, uh, you're in the, the podcasting world along with me. <laughs> Uh, I am as of recent months. Yeah. Nice. And, and it's through an organization called Faith Matters. Faith Matters Foundation. Right. And uh, the podcast is uh, Conversations with Terrell Givens. Is that correct? That's yeah. right. That's right. And so uh, what was the impetus for this? What, what uh, encouraged you towards this direction? Well, I've been very slow and reluctant to acknowledge that books are no longer the primary vehicle through which ideas are disseminated mm-hmm. in our society. And then it had been urged upon me by various well-meaning entities and friends that I needed to move from book publishing into podcasting if I really wanted my ideas to have wider currency. But I wasn't really interested in promulgating my own ideas through that medium. But I had been engaged, I have been for the last four years or so, in a kind of wide-ranging conversation with people struggling at the edges of faith. And uh, there are and have been a number of podcasts that publicize and promulgate reasons to leave the faith, Mm -hmm. challenges to faith and to our tradition. And the recognition was dawning on others and on myself as well that, that, well, maybe podcasts could be well employed to promulgate faith, to strengthen faith in in ways similar to what you yourself are doing. But I think what, what makes my series a little different, at least in intention, is that rather than directly addressing issues of current concern, rather than reacting to, you know, the question is, are there really horses in ancient America? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why did Joseph have multiple accounts of the first vision? I thought, you know, we really could do more to just celebrate what I see as a completely unappreciated intellectual and theological richness to the Mormon tradition. And so the idea is that we're not responding, we're not reacting to anything. We are just trying to more widely disseminate and make better known the riches of our own cultural and theological tradition and do this in such a way that people, especially of the younger generations, but really of all ages, can listen to these interviews and the response can be, wow, there there's some really interesting people, some deep thinkers, some exciting ideas that are spawned out of the resources of Mormon scripture and theology and literature. And so that's the intent. Nice. And you've done a handful of interviews that are published now and and have some recorded and, and many in the, the future. And there, what's your approach with some of these interviews? How would you, how would you explain that? To well, the first person? series we called The Ways of Discipleship. And so we've interviewed people ranging from Darius Gray to Elder Jensen, the church historian emeritus, to you know Rosalind Welch and Sam Brown. And, and our intention there has been to demonstrate that there isn't one typical Mormon or one typical testimony. Yeah. And the idea is to suggest that uh, everybody has to find their own spiritual path and their own road to discipleship, and it can be manifest in many ways, that testimonies don't all acquire the same form or shape, that there are many ways of coming to Christ, many ways of celebrating and engaging the gospel, and that's we're trying to show some of that diversity and yeah. richness. Yeah, well, I definitely encourage all listening to type that into your, your search function on your podcast app and Definitely well worth a listen. And you have, you. they have videos that go along with it. They're, right. They're video casts that you can download as podcasts or video casts. Yeah. But I, I prefer the, the face-to-face encounter. I want to see the body language. I want to see the yeah. facial expressions of the person I'm engaging. So that was my preferred medium. Yeah, for sure. I found if there's any chance of me being in person with the person I'm interviewing, it uh, makes a whole lot of difference. So yeah. there's a lot of value from that. 
I want to take a different course. Uh, you've you've had opportunity to serve as bishop. Yes. Uh, what do you remember from that moment when? Tell us the story when you were called. What do you remember from that? I was called in a way that wasn't a great boost to my self confidence. <laughs> the stake president let me know that I wasn't on anybody's list and they had prayed and prayed, but couldn't get confirmation of the ones <laughs> oh, no. they, they thought should be the bishop. And so finally, as a last resort, it threw my name into the hat. The dark horse. And, here, uh, <laughs> so effectively, what he was saying to me was, you're the last person on my list, but I guess you're the one the Lord wants. <laughs> kind of remind, reminded me of President Kimball's call when he, yeah. he describes encountering an old townsperson in Thatcher, Arizona. And he said, well, Spencer, I know the Lord called you. And he was all puffed up with expectation of a real compliment. And then the guy continued saying, because the Lord's the only one that would have thought of you. <laughs> so, yeah, I was called the week of 9-11. So wow. it was a pretty traumatic circumstances surrounding that moment. And this is in Richmond this area. So. In Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So, yeah, right. Within down you know, the street, a couple it, hours of, yeah. of, uh, of the Pentagon mm -hmm. incident. And so... I remember going to a good friend of mine who had been a bishop, and I said, if you could give me just one bit of advice about being a bishop, what would it be? And he said, you need to recognize that you will occupy a position such that you have unprecedented ability to make a difference in people's lives. And he said, the slightest look or gesture from a bishop can mean the whole difference between having a great Sabbath experience and not. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think what he was trying to say was just be aware of the power of the mantle that you wear and use that as an influence for good in ways large and small. And, uh, and I, I experienced that, I think, immediately, that people look to you not because of who you are, but because of the office you occupy. And a friendly word, an encouraging gesture from a bishop means more than the comparable words or gesture from just about anybody else in the congregation. And so I think of it as a holy responsibility and try to act in, in that way. Yeah. So when you heard that advice, how did that impact your, your service going forward? Well, we tried to initiate a number of practices that would result in frequent, significant interaction and contact with everybody in the ward. So for example, one practice that we engaged in was during the closing hymn in sacrament service, the two of us who weren't conducting would go to the rear of the chapel and stand at each exit hmm. so that not a single individual was able to escape the chapel without personally encountering the bishop or one of his counselors. We made a goal to be in the home of every single member in the ward within the first year. And so we devoted one night a week, every week of the year, to going out and just visiting members of the ward and interacting with them and their families. I asked the executive secretary to make appointments with every single young person in the ward at the time of his or her birthday. So I would take them out for ice cream and personally engage them. So it was really about the personal interaction that we tried to make the focal point of, of my time as bishop. Yeah. You know, I, I often, if there's any question that ranks in the top three that I get from the leading LDS audience is around this concept of faith crises and being able to minister to the one who is really grappling with their beliefs whom that they thought were so certain before. And in that moment, uh, I think many bishops want to just uh, transform into Terrell Givens in, in their office and be able to be so articulate and, and walk them through some of these things. And one thing I love that is so fascinating to me about the calling as, as bishop, and it really any leadership calling, Relief Society president, uh, some of these callings are so much responsibilities there. It's, it's a great equalizer that... Uh, 
regardless of your background, you're going to feel not as adequate to lit, to step up to the task there. So what were some of those moments where you just felt inadequate? Does, does any come, come to mind? Yeah, not in the, the realm of faith crisis, but right, in the realm right. really of emotional crisis, hmm. uh, mental health issues, marital issues. Uh, I was very frustrated at times feeling, you know, I'm not trained for this. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with depression. I don't know how to deal with marital friction. And uh, so I, my sense is that the church does a better job in the years since I was called and released, which is right more than almost two decades ago now. But I can remember feeling just overwhelmed by my inadequacy and incapacity to function in some of those ways that a bishop is often called upon to act. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, describe yourself as bookish. You know, you've, you've read, you're, you're a learner, a lifelong learner. What's something that that calling taught you that you couldn't have learned from a book or any other method? Well, I, what it taught me, and fortunately what I've been able to learn to some extent from my wife, is that I think the single most ingredient in service, and this does extend to faith crisis ministry, is the gift of empathy, the power of empathy. Mm. And, you know, we always want to answer questions from our perspective. <laughs> and I think, I think the real secret of ministering to others is putting yourselves in that position, feeling their pain. My wife has really made a, a priority in her own life of discipleship and in her public ministry, the words of the baptismal covenant as we find them in Mosiah. And she really teaches powerfully in this regard that the three key ingredients there are that we bear one another's burdens, mm-hmm. we mourn with those who mourn, so that we can comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And she points out that what it's really describing there is a process of empathy, that we have to get inside their skin, we have to feel the weight of their burdens, we have to feel the texture of their cross, we have to weep with them in, a, in this act of empathy. And only then are we in in a position to comfort from within rather than from without the experience. Yeah. That's so powerful because I I know, you know, myself being in that, in the past, being in the position of bishop, that someone comes in with a problem and naturally we want to fix it. All right. Do do we need to write a check? What do you need? Uh, But just to take that moment to just let that burden weigh on both of us. No, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, my mother never once interfered in my marriage. She's not an interfering type. <laughs> but she did come to me one time. She said, you know, I've got a book here that I think can, might change things. <laughs> and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an LDS book. It was this book that was a great, it was a really popular back in the 80s and 90s, I think. It was called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Yeah, yeah. But what I learned from that, and I think one of the main messages of that book was, men, you got to stop trying to fix everything. Right. When people come to you, complaining about a hurt or a pain, they're not asking you to fix it. They're asking you to feel with them. And so, you know, today it's not popular. It's not kosher any longer, right? To make gender distinctions of that nature. But I think there is a great deal of truth to that, that women tend to be intuitively more empathic. Men want to be the Superman on the scene fixing everything. And nowhere can that be more catastrophic, I think, than as a bishop who thinks that that's what he's being asked to do. Yeah rather than to just, in many cases, be a good listener. Yeah. Is there any uh, specific advice you give to be more empathetic, or is that that's something that each bishop or, or leader has to discover on their own? You know, I was at a ward party one time where we had a game that we used as a kind of mixer, and you started with five bobby pins on your lapel, and then you had to engage everybody in the room, and every time you used the word I, you had to give up one of your bobby pins. <laughs> 
And it was an eye-opening, life-changing experience for me because I learned that that most of us can't go three minutes without using the word I a dozen times. Yeah. We always want to bring everything back back to me, to my, and say, yeah, I know. Yeah, I had an experience like that. Yeah, I... And that's not listening. That's, what did they call that now? That's, that's thread-jacking, right? You're uh-huh. thread-jacking the conversation. And so I think... I think the best way you avoid that tendency to fix and impose yourself is to just to just shut up and listen and stop trying to relate it to your frame of reference and your experience. Yeah. Many times I would articulate the the different purposes of the rooms of a typical LDS chapel. And obviously the purpose of the chapel is so obvious, you know, the the sacred sacrament that's administered there. But I always drew attention to the sacredness of that bishop's office that Anybody's invited to come in and you can say whatever you want. I tell people, you can swear at me if you want. You can scream and yeah. yell and talk about how life is unfair. And I think there's such this, uh, that rather than classifying it as the fix-it room, the tool shed, yeah. but more of yeah. this is a place you can come. We close the door and there's no rules. You can articulate anything you want and I'm going to be there with you, right? And yeah. and, and yeah. feel that with you. And and uh, I think that's a powerful message is that the message of empathy. And I think this segues really nicely into the other topic you raised a few minutes ago about faith crisis yeah. or faith challenges. I know that I have felt a radical shift in the mood of a conversation when I validate somebody's doubts and mm. fears and uncertainties in ways that they didn't anticipate. And I think this is the direction in which Elder Ballard is trying to shift church leadership. Mm, yeah. And I think he's done it very emphatically and explicitly in his address last year to the CES. Maybe it's been two years now. And in subsequent addresses where he is, my favorite line from Elder Ballard's talk is this. He said, leaders, a testimony is not an answer to a question. <laughs> so what he's saying is, again, he's saying, listen, listen to the question and don't interject yourself with your own faith position. And I think people just want to be validated in what in many cases are absolutely legitimate perplexities and uncertainties about our own faith tradition, our history, the way we've been telling our story, apparent contradictions and incongruities with a historical record or with a scientific, or, you know, validate, validate rather than solve. Yeah. I mean, validation is such a, you know, it's definitely on the road to empathy, right? There's nothing more empathetic than saying, you know, what you're feeling is completely normal or I understand what what you're articulating here. And, you know, and so, you know, it sort of plays hand in hand with empathy is is that step of validation. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And then I think, at least in my experience, more fruitful and productive often than trying to answer the question is to interrogate the question itself. Mm. I remember my... The earliest experience that I can remember in which I was asked to engage a person in a moment of faith crisis, she was a missionary. She was about to leave, about to finish her mission, and she'd made the decision she was going to leave the church. And the mission president gave her permission to come over to my home and speak with me because I guess he knew my writings. He thought I might be a person with relevant background to help and we talked and it went back and forth for quite a while, but the, the moment of, of radical change occurred when it finally dawned on me to ask this question. She was disturbed by something. I don't know what it was. Let's say it was, let's say it was, did Joseph Smith really, you know, marry somebody without telling Emma? Or did he really marry a 14-year-old girl? And I remember I turned to her and I said, I asked the question, why does that matter 
to you? What's at stake in that question? And I remember she just stopped and she thought for a minute and then she said, I'm not sure. <laughs> and it's like she realized that, that, yeah, there's something inherently disturbing about right. that or concerning about her question, but is that relevant to the question of whether temple ordinances are valid, of whether we really lived in a preexistent world, of whether priesthood power is real and efficacious? And she suddenly realized that there might be a disconnect between her preoccupation with this question and the real grounds of her faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. And so I think that that's where most often we need to go in these kinds of conversations as well. Is this question meaningful? Is it really relevant? Is it full of false assumptions that either contextualize it or condition it? So we need to do a better job, I think, of the way in which we try to reframe and guide yeah. the questions we ask. Joseph Smith got somewhere because he was asking the right questions in his visit to the Sacred Grove and subsequently. And that's what Joseph learned. He learned the art of asking the right question yeah. that is going to be productive. I remember another experience with a, a lovely, wonderful man and his family in Europe, and he too was considering leaving the church. And we went back and forth for two days. I was with him. And it finally came to me to ask, the last question I asked before, before we separated was, I said, do you believe that at this moment in your life, you have all the resources necessary to conduct yourself and your family back to the presence of Heavenly Father? Do you believe you have the priesthood power and keys, the temple ordinances, the scriptural resources, the correct principles and teachings to do that? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, then what's the problem? <laughs> Why does the rest of this matter? How can anything compare with that in significance? And, uh, and, and I left him with that, yeah. that thought. Last I talked with him, he was, he was solidly rooted in the church. Wow. You know, and that, and, and I think there's a, a, a nuance in that question of you're, you weren't asking that from a point of view of like, it doesn't matter. So why does it matter? Right. You were asking it truly helping them discover why are you even asking this question? Yeah. You know, and, and if it is true, yeah. does it matter? Yeah. Are you allowing yourself to be distracted by what Jesus referred to as the lesser matters, the less yeah. weighty matters? Yeah. And so, you know, talking in the context of individuals, in the midst of a, a faith crisis is sort of the popular term. I don't know if it's the, the most appropriate term, but showing that validation. And I think the showing that validation and, and helping guide them through questions, right? Rather than just the, the fix it mentality, that's sort of the place to start Yeah, with yeah. these, these situations. I know that many bishops out there or, or leaders when they're faced with this, they kind of feel like it's their, again, back to the fix it mentality, but it's their, job to make sure that this doesn't get worse. And so it turns into this uh, discouragement of certain resources. Don't read those books. The, you know, yeah. Those are anti-Mormon or don't do that. How do we sincerely uh, have faith in their own journey of faith without uh, trying to influence it or shoehorn them into a certain way of thinking? I think, I think one way is, is we, we need to have more frank acknowledgement of our own limitations. Mm. I think, again, going back to Elder Ballard, He's repeated this theme in recent months. He said, leaders of the church, he said, I myself, when I don't know the answer to a question, I go to somebody who does, to a scholar or historian who's better versed in this question. So I think there's nothing wrong with a bishop or anybody else saying, you know, I, I really don't know why there are four different accounts of the first vision. Let's find somebody who does know and acknowledge that it's a good question and just direct towards a reputable line of inquiry and, and good sources. So... It's not so much the, you know, 
you know, one 170 said at a general conference a few years ago, if you're reading things on the internet that disturb you, stop reading the internet. I think that's bad advice. I mm. think that's the wrong. In fact, I, I had a call afterwards from Lori Goodstein, the New York Times religion reporter. And she said, can you explain to me the contradictions I'm hearing from the tabernacle? She said, I'm hearing some of the apostles who are saying, doubt is understandable. Come to us even in the midst of your doubts. And these are, these are natural experiences to go through. And I'm hearing others saying, no, shut, shut those sources off. Don't listen to them. And so the message isn't always uniform, but there is a growing, I think, chorus of voices coming from the leadership that are saying, no, we, we don't want to shut down intellectual inquiry. The internet is not the enemy. Historians aren't evil demons. There are legitimate complications and contradictions that we need to work through. Mm-hmm. And so I think a frank acknowledgement of that, that, yeah, we haven't always got our history right. Yeah, that we, we have been inaccurate in the way that we have told our story. But boy, aren't we doing a better job now? Look at the Gospel Doctrine webpages. Look at the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Look at the new four-volume history of the church that's about to be released. We clearly have entered into a phase of maturity and honesty and transparency. And so, you know, let's give ourselves a little bit of credit that we have repented and redressed some of the errors in the ways that we have narrated our our history in the past. You know, it's interesting, and I don't know if this is more the culture of the church or, or not, but we tend to celebrate somebody doubting their belief and coming into our church, but we condemn somebody doubting their faith and leaving the church, right? When both are a sincere desire towards towards what they want to call truth. Yeah. And there's been a lot of controversy more than I would like to have seen engendered even within the church about the the value or meaning of that word doubt, Mm. right? You got some church writers who are, I think, trying to recriminalize doubt suggest that doubt means faithlessness and doubt is contrary to this. You know, Hubie Brown, right, one of the greatest leaders of the modern dispensation said, we all have to serve an apprenticeship in doubt on the way to discipleship. And, you know, as to whether doubt and faith can coexist, well, of course they can coexist. The Savior himself, right, encounters a man who says to him, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. What's that if not the coexistence of faith and uncertainty. And so, you know, I want to emphasize, because I think I'm, I'm misquoted sometimes, and I think I'm mischaracterized at times as celebrating doubt. Well, I celebrate doubt as a phase on the path to something better and richer. I don't for a moment think that we want to inculcate an attitude of doubt, that that's a condition that we want to attain to and hold on to. But it's like, well, it could be likened to a, a sprained ankle, right? It's a pain that alerts us to certain dangers that lie ahead if we don't deal with it. And so I I want to see doubt as a catalyst to further inquiry and examination and searching so that we attain to a a level of understanding that is healthy. Now, you know, I want to make one other point here too, and that is that some people are never going to leave that condition of doubt. And sometimes they're going to need to learn to just deal with that. One of the more dramatic experiences that taught me Something about this was uh, I was in Australia at a Joseph Smith commemorative conference, and a woman approached me during a break, and she was visibly shaken, visibly disturbed. And my recollection, she grabbed me by the lapels and pushed me into the corner. I don't think she really did that, <laughs> but the intensity of her yeah, quest felt that way. Felt that way. And she said, "I've served as a Relief Society president. I, I'm a Temple Mormon. I'm a committed lifelong saint." She said, "But I've read things that suddenly leave me." wondering and doubtful. And then the question came. She looked into my eyes and she said, I need to hear from you. Do you know, do you know 
these things are true. And I said to her, I don't. I believe these things are true. And it's been my experience that people who are more inclined to a life of intellectual engagement, scholarship, academics, intellectuals, tend not to have the gift of knowledge of spiritual things. DNC tells us that to some is given to know and to others is given to believe. I think I'm one of those who doesn't have that gift of knowledge, but I'm content to believe and to affirm as an act of faith. And at that moment, she relaxed and she realized, oh, I'm not deficient. I'm not inadequate. I'm not guilty of some sin because I'm not able to say I know. And it's okay to be a disciple who just believes. Hmm. And I think for many of us, that's the position we're called to occupy is one of faithful trust rather than certain knowledge. Hmm. I, I love that. And I don't know if, are you familiar with the book, The Sin of Certainty? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I recently read that a few months ago. And it's not an LDS author. I think he's mm-hmm. Presbyterian pastor of some type. But uh, as I read that, there's so much to learn about the Mormon experience and the Mormon culture, because every month we have a meeting where it is culturally approved and normal to stand up and use, I know, and then fill in the blank. I know, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, yeah. right? And sometimes when we get away from that, it's, it's almost as if the goal is not sanctification. The goal is not ordinances. The goal is not trusting in God. The goal is to be able to stand up and say, I know. Right. And in my experience, that that part of our culture can sometimes uh, limit us in our religious experience. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we've, we've, we've created a culture of certainty, and that has terribly pernicious effects on many, many saints who feel marginalized and ostracized because they can't use those words. I personally don't believe sin, that certainty is a sin. I think that one of the unique, exceptional characteristics of the Restoration is the promise of certainty that can be attained by many, right? Joseph Smith felt actual resurrected hands on his head. 11 people hefted gold plates, Yeah, right? The, the restoration is rooted in this. It's section 93, right? That most beautiful of all promises, right? It shall come to pass that all those who forsake their sins and come unto me, right? Can eventually see me and know that I am the witness of the second comforter. So Latter-day Saint theology is full of promises of the possibility of certainty. But again, going back to that promise in Doctrine and Covenants where it enumerates the spiritual gifts, that's not everybody's gift. So the sin is to claim certainty when we don't feel it Mm. or to pressure others to express certainty when they don't feel it. So we need to have the kind of church in which some people can stand up like Elder McConkie and say, I know And when we hear that testimony, the Spirit witnesses to us, yeah, that person really does know. And then the person who follows him has to be able to stand up and say, I believe these things are true. And there's just as much room in the congregation for her. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And you're going back, I love that experience you told about the the former release site president and wants to know if if you know, right? And I think a lot of a lot of leaders in the church feel like, well, you know, they hear Elder McConkie, the, the famous uh, conference talk before his death, where he gave such a powerful I know testimony. We right. feel like I'm sort of the local Elder McConkie. And so I have to be able to say, I know I'm the bishop. Yeah. I have to be of, of some yeah. level of certainty. And so they may force it a little or they feel shame when they feel like oh, I just I believe I, you know, I'm not faltering in my beliefs of the, of the core tenets of the of the gospel. But when I stand in front of the congregation, I have to use these words. What encouragement you give to 
to somebody thinking that? I would say if you look to the scriptures, the two most powerful testimonies that I have encountered in scripture are not the Elder McConkie variety. They're that variety of the sister that follows Elder McConkie in my example. Yeah. You've got Nephi who's asked by the angel, you know, do you understand these things? Are you getting this? And Nephi says, I know the Lord loveth his children, but I don't understand the meaning of all things. Or the man in the temple in the New Testament who's pressed by the Jewish leaders, right, to help them indict Christ. And, and he expresses a beautiful testimony of sorts when he says, you know, I don't know. I don't know these well, All I know is I was blind and now I see. Hmm. And I think those are given to us in part, at least as examples of the principle that you testify of what you know and you don't testify of what you don't. And I can think a few things that would be more inspirational to a large constituency in every ward than for bishops to feel that in their weakness and vulnerability, it's a true reflection of their spiritual status. They can stand up and say, I don't know. I'm serving as bishop because I love the Lord. I'm willing to put my faith and trust on the altar. But I've had no experience that gives me that certain conviction toward which I still yearn and yeah. hope one day to achieve. Yeah. And because that really shows that the bishop is, he's on his own path. It's not that he's arrived. That's right. Right. And I love that the way you articulate that, because not only does it give leaders the permission to say, I know, and that it's okay to say, I know. And there's some people that, you know, have that, that witness, but it's also okay from even earlier examples you give to say in the bishop's office as the bishop, I don't know, yeah. but let's see what we can discover together. Yeah. Let's see what we can find. Right. Uh, rather than defaulting to as elder Ballard has discouraged us from just saying, well, I'm just, I'm going to drop back with my testimony and fire and that's that right. spirit will, will change their mind right before me. Right. But that's, uh, we have to let these things unfold naturally. Yeah. Latter-day Saint scriptures. I, I love the fact that they, that they always appeal to the heart and the mind, right? It's about mm-hmm. the heart and the mind. I'll tell you in your heart and in your mind. So the Lord is saying, no, I gave you a brain to use. Faith doesn't occur in the absence of reason. It has to find consistency with the mind. And sometimes yeah. one or the other is going to dominate. Yeah. What, uh, shifting a little bit from the context of the Bishop's Office, just to a general Sunday school lesson. You know, I, I live in Woods Cross, Utah, fantastic ward, really enjoy it. The very traditional Utah ward, obviously very conservative. There's nothing said in Sunday school I don't necessarily disagree with, but sometimes I just, I sit there and, and wrestle inside myself that I wish there could be a deeper discussion, but there's no other outside perspectives or opinions. And so, and then I wonder, I wonder if there's anybody in here that does have a different opinion or, or feels a bit alienated because it seems like the whole room is agreeing on this point. How can leaders go about changing the culture of a, of a classroom so that, again, not that we bring in, you know, anti-Mormon literature and say, well, what, what do you think about this? You know, but just so there's more open dialogue, because I think that leads to a deeper, a deeper faith experience and further on the path of the, the road to sanctification. I'll, I'll answer that a couple of ways. First of all, I'll, I'll ask you a question. As a bishop, who do you think, to what position is the bishop supposed to appoint the most talented, spiritually powerful individual in the ward? What would you say? That the bishop is supposed to be that person? No. Or, or that I'm... After the bishop, uh-huh. or even in, in oh, lieu yeah. of the bishop, what calling should that person have in the ward? Right. No, this is a great question, which I've talked about on Leading LDS and, before. And usually, but I would say, in my opinion, and this is... A, is I, I remember early on in the church in the 50s, 60s, the Sunday school superintendent, as I used to call it, was this calling they held up that yeah. oh, you're the Sunday school superintendent, which is now the Sunday school president. In my mind, if you can get the Sunday school president right, 
it solves a lot of problems in that Sunday experience. See, see I would say, and I think typically you'd say, well, the elders quorum president. Yeah, or, or your or, counselor. Or your counselor or, or, yeah. or the Relief Society president yeah. if it's a woman. And I say, I say, no, the Sunday school teacher, the gospel doctrine teacher. Hmm. Because here's, here's the point. No other person is a constant in the weekly Sabbath experience of the majority of adults. Relief Society president may or may not be, Elders Quorum may or may not be. But if you go to Sunday school, that is the staple. That's, mm, yeah. that's the constant. And so I don't think any calling in the ward is more important than the Sunday school teacher. And I think that's where we're falling down. Because we think of Sunday school teaching, oh, well, you know, she needs to grow or he needs this experience. Yeah. <laughs> or, and it's, no, you got to call the most talented individual. And then the second thing is that you've got to inculcate in the Sunday school teacher, I think, the fact that you've got to ask genuine questions. And that's what's mm. wrong with Sunday school. You know, a lot of people leave the church over polygamy, a lot leave over the, the priesthood ban or LGBT issues. But, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that the majority of people leaving or falling into inactivity are leaving because of boredom. <laughs> And, and it's, it's boredom because Sunday school has become a ritual. Yeah. What is tithing? Somebody raises their hand, 10% of our interest. That's right. Why do we pair tithing? Hand goes up. Well, because we're blessed for, you yeah. know. Right. So uh, superficial. We're right. dying of boredom. Ask real questions. It isn't that hard. Some bishops are also, you know, we've traveled around the world talking to people, giving firesides. And we've found a number of stake presidents and bishops alike who have taken the initiative to address this problem in more innovative ways. They have created other kinds of Sunday school classes hmm. where they systematically work their way through the gospel topics, for yeah. example. And they rotate in and out so that everybody has an opportunity to do something that's a little bit outside the kind of rote routine of normal Sunday school classes. But we're in crisis. We're in crisis with our Sunday school classes. No question. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the, the first step to that of bishops listening or that you know, look at your first counselors. He's the most able body or the Relief Society president and put them as that teacher. That's right. And uh, man, it, right. it could really transform some things. Well, this has been fantastic. Any points or perspectives we're missing on this on this topic that uh, need to be said before we move The general on? topic of faith and... Yeah, just the crisis, crises of faith, of that mm, faith experience. and I, I guess, no, I, well, maybe one other observation I'd make, and that is I still see a lot of resistance among the laity, as well as among some local leadership, to the idea of addressing these questions head on. And uh, I can remember one really dramatic encounter in England where we were shut down in the middle of a workshop, an area authority and, and CES supervisor. <laughs> he just shut us down. He said, I don't like this. I don't like these questions. I don't think this is productive. And I, you don't have my blessing to continue this meeting. Wow. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty rude <laughs> interrupt. Well, so we continued. We had a whole series of fireside schedule throughout the country. And at the very end, I think we were in, in New York, huge fireside, hundreds and hundreds of people there. And we had heard that this brother was going to come and preside, but he was late. He got stuck in traffic. He shows up at the very, very end. And after we had finished, he stood up to conclude the meeting and he bore his testimony that the restoration began because people, Joseph Smith, asked good questions. We thought, well, this is a little bit different. Then after the meeting, he took us aside and he apologized. Hmm. And he said, I shut that meeting down because I was uncomfortable with the questions. He said, and I realized afterwards that, that we can't avoid these questions. They arise, they come to us. And the best thing to do is to take the bull by the horns and, and faithfully work our way through them. And, and he said, so I want you to know you have my blessing to, yeah. to continue what we're doing. And so I, I think that when you inoculate a population, 
people die, hmm. right? Even today, you inoculate for smallpox and one out of, I don't know, a thousand, one out of 10,000 is going to die. And so it is true that some people, for example, I was at a fireside with Richard Bushman in which a man said in a, in a rather snide way, he said, I want to thank uh, Brother Bushman for writing his book, Rough Stone Rolling, because it helped me leave the church. Well, you know, he died from the inoculation. Yeah. But the vast majority are strengthened and made more resilient. And yeah. so I would just hope that as local leaders and others, we could see that, yeah, there's going to be some people who are hurt and wounded souls that, are, that happen along the way, but that the overall strength of the church is going to be greatly enhanced. We're all going to be fortified if we learn to ask questions with faithfulness and courage. And yeah. Fantastic. As we wrap up here, a few more questions. Uh, one of my favorite questions you asked during uh, your interviews on, on the Conversations with Terrell Givens uh, podcast is you ask about their holy envy of a different faith tradition that, that practice or, or something in, in, in that uh, context that, that you really envy about that experience. Uh, what, what's the holy envy that comes to mind for you? I think I have holy envy of those faith traditions in which art and literature are seen as sacred vehicles. And I know that one reason why I so loved President Kimball was because of words he spoke in my hearing once when he said, when God didn't have prophets, he spoke to poets and mm. musicians. And so I envy the Catholic Church because of the place that great art and great music and great literature have in that tradition. And in Fiona's in my own life, our spiritual life would be so much more impoverished than it is if we didn't feel the freedom and the necessity to gather, as Joseph encouraged us, the great and precious truths and insights from wherever they come, whatever tradition they come. So that's, that's my wish, is that as Latter-day Saints, we can be less afraid, less prejudiced against what we see as an apostate, non-Mormon Christendom, and open ourselves up to the riches of other traditions and make them a part of our own. Yeah, love that. Before I ask my final question, what uh, if people want to learn more about you, about the podcast, about uh, the books you've written, where where would you send them? Well, um, <laughs> I don't have a Facebook page. I'm I'm going to be resistant to the end. I'll be the last man standing. But I, <laughs> the university does ask us to have web pages, so I do have a web page. And through that webpage, you can link to many of my podcasts, articles, and books. Yeah, and that's terrellgivens.com. That's right? it, yeah, nice. thanks. And uh, we, I feel ashamed, I haven't even mentioned some of these recent titles of, of your books, you know, The God Who Weeps, uh, your recent one, The, the Christ the, Who... The Christ Who Heals, who together heals, yeah. with Fiona Givens. Yeah, yeah. and obviously, uh, you can find those at any desert book, and and uh, they're good uh, page turners, to, and maybe uh, you turn back a few pages to think about things and reread it and, uh, Hope and so, so forth. Yeah. So, Well, the final question... Uh, the traditional question I ask is, as you look about your, uh, as you look back on your experience as a leader in the church, as a bishop, what did that experience of leadership teach you about being a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? The most transformative moment in my years as bishop was one day I was sitting on the stand thinking about some of the hurting families and individuals in the congregation. And I, I began to go through the congregation face by face by face, asking myself the question, Who's in a good place? Who is solid and strong and cruising along? And I realized that there wasn't one single individual in that congregation who wasn't carrying a cross. And I think one of the apostles has said recently, when you encounter a stranger, assume that they're carrying a burden, and more than half the time you'll be right. 
And so I think that the real essence of discipleship is that recognition that we are all wounded, that we are all hurting, and that there isn't anybody whose life you can't make better by a shared concern for what they're going through at this moment in their lives. That's what I learned. That concludes my interview with Carol Givens. I'm so grateful for this experience. I, I find it such a blessing that I had an opportunity to sit down with that Brother Givens and, and ask him some of these questions. I was inspired by this episode. I hope you were too, as a leader, that you can be inspired to more readily take on these sticky facts that are maybe in our history or difficult doctrines, policies, whatever it is, and uh, validate that individual. You know, that quote from what uh, Terrell said as far as when somebody's in a bishop's office and they feel validation, there is an immediate shift. And I hope you as a leader, as you interact with people that maybe have different levels of belief or knowledge, you can validate their experience and they will know and feel your love that you're willing to, to let that burden rest not only on them, but you'll help them lift that burden as well. But most importantly, Christ will be the one that lifts that and that their, their engagement with the gospel will bless their life. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org contact. Remember to access the Questioning Saints library for 14 days, visit leadingsaints.org 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.